I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. This is episode 23 about H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness and Other Tales of Terror. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me is that elder thing, Jeff Goad. Hello. And this week, we have a very special guest, Bob the Voice Brinkman. The elder, elder thing. <laughs> the elder, elder thing. <laughs> co-host of Sanctum Secorum, uh, a DCC adventure author, uh, also has written a, a fifth edition adventures for Goodman Games, and works in the uh, Miskatonic University monograph series for Chaosium. Uh, that's Silent Night and Hope, I believe, are the adventures they have written. Mm-hmm. And also fiction for the Metamorphosis, Metamorphosis Alpha universe. Correct. <laughs> right. So, Bob, I also have to say, um, I think we mentioned this to you once in an email. You are sort of indirectly responsible for this podcast in some ways because um, I first heard about the New York meetup group on one of your listings on Sanctus Decorum, and that's how I met Jeff. So. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that is absolutely awesome. So, uh, so let me ask you, Bob, uh, what is your history with gaming and how did you get into it? Wow, um, I started I started gaming back in the days of uh, of little brown wood grain boxes, and uh, I was going to a small private school in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I'd been there for about a week, and we were doing a uh, an, a weekend long retreat with the school, and at night, some of the people that I knew were sitting around playing. D&D, and I'd never seen anything like it before, I'd never been exposed to it, so of course I was very curious, and by the time the weekend was done, I was hooked. We started playing, then when AD&D came out, it was immediately leaping over to AD&D, and... Uh, so, the course of your life was set. <laughs> the course of my life was set, and then at my first Gen Con, back when it was in Milwaukee... Uh, I was I was walking through the aisles and I saw this this huge sign with this creepy looking house and a guy holding a lantern. It said Call of Cthulhu and I I walked up and this man named Sandy Peterson sold me my first box set of Call of Cthulhu. Ah, cool. The first, the first edition box. The, it was the, the big box. it was the second edition. It was the second edition white box. Yeah, the skinny box. Yes, that uh, is very cool. And Bob, what was your introduction to the Appendix N? How did you become aware of it as a concept? And had you already been reading it prior to knowing what the Appendix N officially was? Well, this may come to us come as a bit of a surprise to you, Jeff. But I was always considered kind of a precocious child, and okay. uh, I think I read my I read my first Shakespeare when I was seven. Uh, which was Macbeth, by the way, and so I was I was always looking for new things. And so back in the day, when you had things like the Columbia House Record Club, there's also the Science Fiction Fantasy Book Club, and my mother signed me up for that. And in my first batch, I had I had Douglas Adams, I had Robert E. Howard, I had Asimov, and I had Heinlein, and that's where I that's that's where I started. 
That's like the uh, Whitman sampler box. Uh, right, right there of, uh, you know, and all of them were caramels. <laughs> that was what was so awesome about it. Yeah, no, strawberry, no, no strawberry nougat. No. Or those, or those cherry cordial things, which are kind of eldritch in and of themselves. There you go. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. And so as you started playing A&D&D, did you sort of gloss just, I mean, you were reading these books, but did you, did you become aware of the appendix and as a thing or was it just? You know, I didn't, I really didn't immediately make the connection. Uh, at the age I, I was at, I wasn't running as much. I mean, when I first started playing, our idea of creating a module was you'd sit down with a piece of graph paper, you'd draw in, you know, a couple of monsters, and you just write it directly in your mind. There's five cobalts here, and they have 12 javelins of lightning, and the floor is frictionless. And, uh, and I, <laughs> I still have some of those, much, much to my shame. And so I didn't, didn't originally make that connection, and it was actually about the time I read Ringworld that I started making a connection to, I can take things from what I'm reading and put them into the game, and then finally sitting down and reading the Dungeon Master's Guide cover to cover. It's like, oh, well, uh, I have a list here. Well, that's handy. Why didn't I notice this before? <laughs> I think uh, the DMG actually rewards rereading a lot because there's a lot of stuff that, I guess, because of Gygax's po- prose, you suddenly say, wait, I never saw that. And it's, I've been playing this game for 30, 40 years, you know? Yeah, it's it, there's always things that... Especially when, since I learned, other people taught me how to play, and I have the books, but when you're taught to play, you're taught with particular rules that you just think are there, and so you never worry about them. And then you find, oh, wait, um, you know that's not right. <laughs> and, so, and so you expand and balance from there. Everybody plays D&D wrong. I've been playing D&D wrong for my entire life. <laughs> I think as long as you're having fun, you're playing it right. Exactly. And what, how, how many times have you guys used the random harlots table from the back of the DMG? Um, since grade <laughs> school or including grade school? <laughs> oh, the DMG. There you go. All right. So uh, shall we dive into uh, the book this week? Yeah, oh, great. Okay. So I've got in my hands the 1975 sixth printing of the 1971 Ballantine Fantasy paperback here and it's got this john holmes cover and uh no it's not that john holmes right and (laughs) this john holmes cover is really really psychedelic and weird uh basically we've got a human kind of a furry human head mask with rats staring from behind the eyes and this like rat tail kind of dangling out from the eyeballs and little rat teeth a weird ass cover right it's probably brown jenkin but it could be some very weirdo uh interpretation of it yeah it it probably yeah it's it's brown jenkin and he's got like but they're like rat eyes behind the eyes so it's like a meta brown jenkin there you go (laughs) what are you reading hoy i have two copies here sitting in front of me i have the arkham house hardcover at the mountains of madness and other novels (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, corrected ninth printing, which so S.T. Joshi went back to some of the manuscripts and tripe scripts and restored some of the texts that had been cut out of the magazine versions. And I also have a copy of the 1999 Dell trade paperback, the annotated H.P. Lovecraft, which specifically has At the Mountains of Madness in there with a lot of notes in there. Um, and how about you, Bob? What are you reading? Uh, well, I was using the 2008 commemorative edition Necronomicon, the best weird tales of H.P. Lovecraft. Although I mm. I have pretty much every version except the old Arkham House version sitting sitting on my shelves. 
And I can confirm that I've, I have seen Bob Brinksman's uh, Lovecraft library, and it is very impressive. It is very massive. He's got basically a whole little room devoted to his Lovecraft tomes. All right. Miskatonic South. <laughs> Miskatonic South. That's yes. right. <laughs> if I could just keep those pesky Waitleys out of there, it'd be great. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but you know, they're, they're like bad pennies that keep on popping up. <laughs> okay. So how about the uh, Hygaxian word of the day? All right. Our Hygaxian word of the day is... Cyclopean. Cyclopean. And cyclopean means denoting a type of ancient masonry made with massive irregular blocks. And cyclopean appears in the text quite a bit. I've underlined one, two, three, four, five, six times that it appeared. It possibly appeared more than that. But my favorite time that it appears in the texts is in this really phenomenal, very long run-on sentence. All this flashed in unison through the thoughts of Danforth and me as we looked from these headless, slime-coated shapes to the loathsome palimpsest sculptures and the diabolical dot groups of fresh slime on the wall beside them, looked and understood what must have triumphed and survived down there in the Cyclopean water city of that knighted, penguin-fringed abyss, whence even now a sinister curling mist had begun to belch pallidly as if in answer, if, as if in answer to Danforth's hysterical scream. Penguin-fringed. I love it. <laughs> yes. Penguin-fringed abyss is possibly my, my favorite turn of phrase, there you go. possibly in the whole collection. There you go. And Bob, I understand that you have a candidate for Hygaxian Word of the Week. I do, just because it's, it's so, it so sums up Lovecraft, and that is his use of the word beyondness. It's, <laughs> it, it's one of those kind of perfect turns of phrase of Lovecraft that is descriptive without being descriptive. And that's that's something he was very fond of, of course, because everything is undescribable. So it must just be this strange otherness, this beyondness. And it, for me, that sort of uh, encompasses all of Lovecraft. Sure. And it's funny, the, uh, the undescribable was a phrase he often uses, but I think good two thirds of At the Mountains of Madness is description, right? Yes. Yes, there's a lot of, a lot of deep description in At the Mountains <laughs> um, of Madness. In fact, let's actually say which stories are in, because we were reading the paperback, so that's basically a cut down version of the Arkham House hardcover. Exactly. It has four stories in the collection. Okay. So in this case, we have Out At the Mountains of Madness, which is written in 1931, but I believe was not published until 1936 in Astounding Magazine. We have The Shunned House from 1924. The Dreams in the Witch House from 1932, and The Statement of Randolph Carter from 1919. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I leave it open to you. Which story do you want to discuss first? Well, actually, I think there's a way I would like to maybe tackle this, because the, the stories have a lot of similarities um, and a lot of differences. But um, I would first ask, what do you guys think these four stories have in common? And, and Bob, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to answer that first. I think all of them, much like all of, or the, at least the majority of Lovecraft's work, deal with mankind in a very in a very intimate setting, encountering something that dwarfs humanity. The idea mm -hmm. that you can be in a room in a house, you know, your own bedroom, that that inviolate safe place, and yet there is this opening to this entire other world that dwarfs your understanding of reality that you can mm -hmm. go to a place where there is nothing and find giant cities 
that you can look into a tomb and the tomb opens into these massive catacombs populated by other things. All of all of Lovecraft is kind of about showing the insignificance of individuals and even humans as a whole. And these four stories, I think, would be no exception. I think that's a really clever observation. One that I would personally add is I feel like all four of these stories include protagonists who are meddling in affairs they should probably have just left alone. In At the Mountains of Madness, we have people, we have scientists who are exploring Antarctica. In The Shunned House, we have a man and his uncle who are aware of this possibly haunted house and become fascinated by it and want to kind of solve the mystery of it. And then in Dreams in the Witch House, we have a young quantum physicist who hears this, uh, this story of this, this, this evil witch who is potentially using quantum physics to travel through dimensions. And he decides to move into that very room to find out more about it. And then finally, in the statement of Randolph, Randolph Carter, we've got somebody who's been kind of dragged along on this journey into the unknown that he's only kind of vaguely aware of what's happening, but he does know that they're like messing with some ancient tomb that should probably be left alone. So in all four of these, we have we have these mysteries that are like right there, but if they would just live their lives normally and not mess around with things that maybe should have just left alone, they never would have gotten into this trouble to begin with. Bob, I like to really like the word intimacy that you use there. One, because I think it's hilarious to think of, but it's so true of Antarctica being intimate. Uh, but you're, you're right, because it, it's, it ultimately becomes a very small story at a certain point on, on the midst of this vast continent. It comes down to these two guys walking through these catacombs. The other place we're going to use intimacy in bedroom, uh, this is really clever. <laughs> this is actually not that clever, but <laughs> the, the Dreams in the Witch House is actually the story that got me to tap out on Lovecraft for almost a decade. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because I'm actually from Lovecraft country mm. and I had been reading Lovecraft from around 11 to about 15. And at the time I started reading dreams in the witch house, I was living in, in a farmhouse that was built in 1839 and I was in the attic with a slanted roof and the <laughs> attic actually had two doors and one of which was bolted that went to another room in the back of the bedroom. <laughs> and that was it. No more Lovecraft for me for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> too real, too real. Totally too real. Well, that, let's face it. Brown, Brown Jenkins is such a delightful uh, fictional creation. He is just, he is iconic Lovecraft creepy. And it's very interesting and thoughtful of Lovecraft to take sort of New England mythology, both in that and the Shunned House, and then sort of flip it on its head and say that, no, whatever we think, however horrible we think something is, it's even more horrible than, you know, once we get to the root of it. And I'm certainly the uh, the kid in the group in terms of my experience with Lovecraft, because both of you guys have been reading Lovecraft for a very long time. I had not read any Lovecraft until maybe just a couple of years ago. Oh, you've never read Lovecraft until you've read it in the original cuneiform. and what i did is i picked up that barnes and noble complete hp lovecraft Mm -hmm. collection and i just started reading it from the beginning so i started working my way through the stories chronologically and i only got maybe about 100 pages into it so all i've read of lovecraft are stories that were published in the in the teens so i actually hadn't read any cthulhu mythos until we picked up this collection Mm. And I had so much fun with it. There you go. (laughs) 
And hands down, my favorite story in this collection is Dreams in the Witch House. Do you guys have a different opinion or is that also your favorite? I I like Dreams in the Witch House, but of of the four, my favorite is definitely At the Mountains of Madness. Well, I just mentioned that I have a very personal connection to Dreams in the Witch House, but At the Mountains of Madness is definitely on the grand scheme of things, probably the best work in here. The Shunned House, I think, has a sort of lower reputation, but I don't think it's undeserved. I think it's sort of where you start seeing him lay the groundwork for a lot of stuff that's in the Cthulhu mythos and sort of the the beyondness, as Bob was mentioning. Mm-hmm. But actually, this brings up an interesting question. And since you mentioned that, you know, you had not really read Lovecraft, do we think that this collection, as it is sequenced with At the Mounds of Madness and then Shunned House and Dreams in the Witch House and then Statement of Randall Carter, is actually a good introduction to Lovecraft? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's kind of tough. I think the any introduction to Lovecraft should definitely include the statement of Randolph Carter, but I think that the absence of the Call of Cthulhu, which is at, at this point, I mean, it's it's the most mainstream and approachable of the stories because let's face it, everybody knows what Cthulhu is, or at least thinks they do at this point. But it also really hits what he had been building up to, and so it kind of reading that story gives you a feeling as you read the others of where where his journey is taking him in a literary fashion and it it kind of sets it sets the road before you and even knowing your final destination doesn't spoil the journey so mm-hmm. i i think that's a must but for the rest of them, I think they're all really good choices. I would almost suggest if that you're reading this collection that you don't read at, at the Mountains of Madness first, that you read the other three stories in whichever order you choose and then come back and read at, at the Mountains of Madness. I mean, it's almost atypical from what people perceive because it's not really initially a horror story. In fact, it's very much to me a science fiction story or a techno thriller in some regards. And that's your recommendation to somebody who's not read Lovecraft before. Uh, that's your recommendation. Okay. Right, right. Now, Bob, you mentioned that this was your favorite of the collection. I would love to hear why At the Mountain of Madness is your favorite of these four. Well, I think that this is Lovecraft's writing at its most elegant and its most poignant. He, he paints, he paints this vision of a world within ours. That's not, uh, it's not appendix and fantasy. It's not the wild science fiction of the time that you were finding in weird tales and other pulps. Instead, he kind of builds this with a very careful and meticulous attention to our world. And so as he's doing this, you know, you've got Dyer, and he has this really weird sounding take on Lake's finding of the cave. But it's all ultimately it's all very scientific. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's this wonderful weirdness that still can conceptually it can still exist within our world. And it, it paints it wonderfully. When you're reading stories like uh, the statement of Randolph Carter, and he's he's creeping around. You know, you've 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 got uh, the professor is is under the ground, and there's all these weird, horrible things. It still has a very supernatural feel, where, like Hoy said, this this has kind of almost a techno thriller feel in that it's all it's all approachable even today and i think that's one of the reasons that the story holds up is it feels it feels real it feels scientific mm-hmm. and we're still exploring that continent today and we're still finding weird things and even though it was written 80 years ago they're still primarily using technology that we have today and would still be using today down there 
Right. And I think that the story itself, the, the story itself, I think also plays, plays really well if you look at it allegorically. There's, there's a lot of meat on the bones of At the Mountains of Madness, which is why it wasn't published till 36, because it was too long. And so it was turned down in 31. Right. And, and I think even then when it was published, there was a sort of misunderstanding, at least on the part of the editors. I know that uh, Lovecraft himself was complaining about how they had split it up and parts that had been excised from the book. Yeah. Uh, I think if you can find, I don't think it changes it drastically, but if you can find one of the corrected texts, I know the penguin penguin trades, I think are the corrected texts. It's a, probably a good way to read it. If you can. I hope that they changed the logo of the penguin books. We're the little albino <laughs> blind penguin for that edition. Six foot albino penguin. <laughs> <laughs> for their penguin fringe abyss. Right, right. Um, uh, the other thing, of course, that the, and again, this is just my little personal connection is the, when, uh, Danforth is naming all the subway stops in mm-hmm. Boston, and those are exactly the line, the subway line I was taking to go to school. Oh, that's know, cool. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> that's really cool. I would say the reason why The Dreams in the Witch House is my favorite of them is I think I think it's At the Mountains of Madness is definitely scary. And as much of it is they're walking through uh, kind of a, a kind of an insane crime scene, is a lot of it, and a lot of kind of scientific archaeological explorations of this like insane other world and insane other civilization. And that's definitely like very creepy. And as the story progresses, it has a real nice kind of slow build in the way that I like movies like Rosemary's baby and the shining, how they kind of have this real slow build. And then these crazy endings that definitely happens in at the mountains of madness. Uh, But I feel like most of the horror in that one is horror that's being witnessed. And I think Witnessing horrific things is definitely scary. Being the victim to horrific things is even scarier. But being forced to participate in horrific acts, I think, is the scariest. Uh, And in The Dreams in the Witch House, our main character ends up playing a part in these horrific things that are happening. And I I found it so tense and so scary. And like, while I was reading it, like I was feeling stressed out in a way that I really enjoy. Cause I'm a big horror fan in general. I love watching horror films. I like reading horror. Uh, so I definitely kind of got that feeling that I tend to chase when I'm looking for good horror in dreams in the witch house more than I got in at the mountains of madness. That's understandable. Yeah. I, I do think it's a more, probably the most, even though Gilman is in some ways more of a cipher than some of the other, I shouldn't say that. Uh, many of Lovecraft's protagonists are are sort of relatively blank, other than a certain amount of neuroticism. But that story does feel more personal. Uh, you said, Bob, it's you know, it's a lot of it is happening in Gilman's bedroom. He's asleep and he wakes up and he sees the Brown Jenkin and Kaziah Mason coming closer and closer in this sort of purple glow, violet glow. Mm-hmm. And so that one, as it feels the closest. And again, as I, as I said, that's the one that caused me to tap out. So sure. Um, and I wonder if part of that too is it's also the only one of the four that's not written in the first person, which mm-hmm. makes sense because it's also the only one of the four where a protagonist dies a horribly gruesome death in the end. Uh, so it's hard to write a story in the first person after you've been uh, gutted by a demonic rat. Well, it also it also has that feeling of a night terror or what you might experience if you're suffering from sleep paralysis, mm-hmm. and it. To a point where, I, and I don't know if either of you have ever been subject to sleep paralysis. I've, I've suffered it from from it for, uh, uh, once, and it was both terrifying and really really cool. Um, but you you 
when you're when you're kind of in that half waking state and there's something there's a presence and it's coming towards you and it's getting closer and you're not really sure what it, what it is or why it's there but you know enough to be frightened of it i think this story carries that feeling in a very visceral form and so yes i would say of of the four it is certainly the most frightening Mm-hmm. And I haven't read Lovecraft's letters, so I don't know if he ever experienced uh, sleep paralysis, but I definitely had yeah, at certain points in my life. And yes, as you say, that sense of presence, that sense of like, and if if I'm awake, it's more horrible than if I'm asleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's actually a documentary about sleep paralysis it's available on Netflix. I'd have to look the name up. Maybe there the there is. I don't remember yeah. what the name is, but there is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, now, Hoy, is Dreams in the Witch House your favorite for any reasons that haven't already been discussed yet? Um, yeah. I'm actually... I'm actually pretty balanced on this one. Again, I think, again, this, this, that's the one that connects with me the most. But like I said, I think the actual sleeper in this connection collection is the Shunned House. Because, mm-hmm. again, it de- tends to have a slightly lower reputation amongst sort of the Lovecraft cognoscenti. And it's uh, good. It is good. And I think mm-hmm. it sets a lot of the groundwork. It's, it feels uh, very specific. I mean, I don't know Providence. I'm, I'm from Boston. But it, it feels very New England. It feels like, uh, I know I could – and then. I've, you know, Jeff, we saw the photos of the house earlier. It's a real house. Mm-hmm. You know, you could turn around the corner and there's the house, you know, and there's the cellar door, right? And what lies behind that cellar door? What I also liked was there was a real kind of touch of empathy and humanity in that story that I, I wasn't expecting because I've not ever seen that in anything Lovecraft has ever written. Because there's a moment where, you know, he's in the he's in the basement with his uncle and they're doing these experiments to try to get this malignant force to kind of manifest so that they can either use their box of radiation or their flamethrower to kill it, which is pretty, <laughs> pretty badass. Uh, and but it goes horribly awry and his uncle ends up dying in the process. And there's this moment where on page 135, he says, I like to think that he existed at that moment and that he tried to bid me farewell. It seems to me I hiccuped a farewell from my own parched throat as I lurched out into the street. And it's just this really kind of touching, sad moment as he like he thinks he sees his uncle say goodbye to him in his final death throes. And he's pretty sure that he did farewell himself, but he was so in the throes of terror, he couldn't be sure. I just thought, I thought that was beautiful. That is. And actually, I think the last sentence is actually quite beautiful, too. And it's the closest thing, I think. Well, I shouldn't say there are happy so-called happy endings. I think the, the Dunwich Horror might be one. Um, but in this case, the last sentence is, the barren old trees in the yard have begun to bear small, sweet apples, and last year the birds nested in their gnarled boughs. And so actually it's a, it's almost a poetic sentence. Yeah. 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 And this idea that Lovecraft doesn't ever give happy endings. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a falsehood. I think, you know... Um, Oh, but anyway. Well, I, I think I think calling that one the happy ending is a bit of a misnomer. I think it's a maudlin ending. It's you know it's it's it, it's taking victory from loss. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely, there there was a price to pay in order to banish the evil in the shunned house, and certainly it's unfortunate that his uncle died. But also, ultimately, in the end, he survives, and they've taken down this evil, and the house recovers, which is pretty remarkable. For Lovecraft. <laughs> well, that is true. Victory of any sort in, in Lovecraft is very uncommon. Yeah, because there's certainly no there's 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 no kind of positive outlook to the finale of the other four of the mm. other three, rather. That is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have to say, I mean, uh, Bob, you're clearly a long term uh, Call of Cthulhu gamer, and I've been playing oh, yeah. since uh, first edition um, as well. That without going too deep into gaming right now, I think that Shunned House 
probably most resembles an actual Call of Cthulhu adventure, at least, or a smaller scale one. Oh, yeah, I, I think that it, in many ways, resembles, I think they renamed it to the Corbett House, but it was originally just the Haunted House. It was the archetypal adventure that came with the game when I got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of sets, it, it sets that we're going to investigate a Haunted House vibe that runs through so many classic Call of Cthulhu adventures. Right. And I love that they're, you know, just total civilians, but they're like, oh, let's get two military-grade flamethrowers. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've, if, you know, if you've ever had a long-term Call of Cthulhu campaign, it is amazing how that sort of thing uh, pops up. <laughs> we can't buy one, we'll build one. We'll build one, yeah. <laughs> so, Bob, I think it's amazing that, you know, on this episode, we have a call of, somebody who's written uh, officially published Call of Cthulhu Adventures for Chaosium. And I'm curious, in those adventures that you wrote, were they in any way way inspired by the four pieces of text we have in front of us or or not really um not really uh i i wrote i wrote two adventures back when dustin wright was putting out uh contest calls for for adventures and i wrote one called hope which which was all about uh you actually played the cultists and so it was the reversal. It's it starts the the adventure starts as the investigator who survived attack. You're know, trying to stop you last night is escaping from the basement, and uh, it, it goes from there. And then Silent Night is more of a well, it was for a Christmas collection, so it's a it's more of a Christmas themed. I think that it was they were more inspired by Lovecraft overall than any any particular story. That's cool. You have a very long-standing relationship with Lovecraft. When did uh, Lovecraft start to start influencing your gaming, or Rook, in that regard? Um, with the release of Deities and Demigods, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my first introduction to Lovecraft. Uh, you know, looking at the book and the illustration of you know at the time Cthulhu, because I had no reference. Um, <laughs> and then I then I started started seeking things out. But that was that was the first time I ever became aware of Lovecraft. And shortly after, I just started devouring everything I could find. Yeah, uh, if it was if it was Lovecraft or Lovecraftian, I was reading it. So, besides Lovecraft's work, I was reading things like The Color Out of Time, and some of the other earlier pastiche works that were right. published. That's the uh, Michael so, Shea one, right? The Color Out of Time. Yes, right. Yes, he wrote that's those, a good one too. He wrote the uh, Nift the Lean books, which are amazing. So those are definitely mm-hmm. worth for people who want to play D anD D and sort of have a horror tinged D anD D. And for those who don't know, the Cthulhu section of the deities and demigods was removed in in a, in a later printing of it. So it is harder to find the deities and demigods that has the Cthulhu entry. But what's kind of cool is a bunch of the entities that are listed in the deities and demigods section are found in this collection. Sure, absolutely. The uh, the elder things, mm-hmm. um, Shoggoths, Shoggoths. Uh, is Nyarlathotep in? Yes, Nyarlathotep is in there. Okay. Uh, I think, I don't know if Azathoth is in there, but Yogsathoth is in Azathoth, there. Azathoth, Hastur is in there. Yeah. Um, I think I think all of the biggies are yeah. in there. Um, although I think they, they sort of conflated Shub-Niggurath and Abosathla, so I think they, they mixed those two up. But other than that, it's very, it definitely commands a premium these days if you can find it, an actual printing of um, that edition of Deities and Demigods. But I think you're right. That's a touchstone for, I think, uh, both you and me and some of our other guests have mentioned that that's, 
rather than Appendix N itself, it was actually deities and demigods that kind of you know caught them onto the fiction. One thing that's been fun for me is you know I I've I've played a little bit of Call of Cthulhu. I haven't played a lot of it, but I've probably been in four or five sessions of it in my life, and I have the book. And I remember looking through the monsters in the book and being like, why are penguins listed as a monster? <laughs> what are they doing in here? So it is, it is kind of nice to finally have an answer to that. <laughs> so now that, uh, yeah, let's kind of dive into the gaming portion of this. H.P. Lovecraft is specifically cited as one of Gary Gygax's major influences and one of the one of the authors who he really recommends people who are looking for inspiration to read. Why do you guys feel that Lovecraft is held on such a high pedestal? Right off the bat, I would say between At the Mountains of Madness and the various works of Margaret St. Clair, you have you have the foundation for the mega dungeons. Mm. You have the foundation for these giant, unending catacomb systems that manifest in Dungeons and Dragons as the Underdark and and other things of that nature. And the idea that there are things unknown that you're going to you're going to find it's in some ways it's very Tolkienian. But at, at the end of the day, that's that's very evocative. That that helps kind of get the imagination going. What it's not just there's something down there. It's there's a place down there, and we do not know what is there. Mankind abhors a mystery. Let's let's fill in those gaps. Right. <laughs> and and those those spaces exist in and of themselves. As humans, we don't necessarily understand the logic, but there is a reason for them to be there, right? And one thing that I also think is really cool and works well with specifically what you're talking about, Bob, is, you know, you look at Waterdeep or you look at the City of the Invincible Overlord, and these are both iconic Dungeons and Dragons locations, these major cities that also have kind of sewer dungeons beneath them. And here in this story, this abandoned city is a dungeon. And there's this like whole sub-level that's also a dungeon. So you've got the, the idea of the abandoned city of an alien race being your dungeon is so cool. And it taps into all of those. Now, one thing I'm curious about, and I'm going go to go turn to the two of you because I feel like you're going to know this better than I will. I know that Expedition to Barrier – is it Expedition at or to Barrier Peaks? To the Barrier Peaks, I think. Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. I know that that is an iconic – AD&D adventure that involves, you know, like ray guns and stuff like that. But I know while reading this, there's two moments in the book, once where he refers to it as these barrier mountains and once where he refers to it at these, as these barrier peaks. D- d- is there any connection between At the Mountains of Madness and Expedition to Barrier Peaks? Um, having just run it, uh, <laughs> I, I, I would say if there is, it is really no more solid than those two references. Okay. I mean, yes, yes, you're exploring, you're exploring what is technically a dungeon uh, that is, that is the ship of an alien race. But beyond that, it really was built more as a, well, it, it was built as, as the introduction for Metamorphosis Alpha and then redone and, and released for just uh, AD&D. I, I think that other than maybe the inclusion of the Mind Flare, which is probably the most Lovecraftian of mm. regular D&D monsters, yeah. I don't really feel a very strong connection. Now, if there were penguins. <laughs> <laughs> that changes everything. <laughs> that changes everything. And there are these two quotes that when I, when I read them, they just it really tickled me because it just felt like such PC mentality. 
But one was in At the Mountains of Madness, Dyer says, to leave the plateau without an attempt at entering some of the monstrous structures would have been inconceivable. And then later on, he also says, the lore of the unplumbed is stronger in certain persons than most expect. And I love the idea that sometimes the MacGuffin is just that the place is there. That's that's also very that's very human. I yes. mean, why did you climb Mount, climb Mount Everest? It was there. Exactly. I, it's uh, Lovecraft's aim was always kind of that objective terror, you know, unbound from you know human psychology. But at the same point, the way that it was most often experienced, or the reason it was most often experienced, was very much human psychology. And in some ways, it, it we carry that through with our with our characters all the time. I mean, our our characters are, you know, if you're if you're murder murder hoboing your way through things, it's kind of your id running unchecked. I mean, what is what is more human psychology at its at its barest than that? <laughs> And I think also sometimes, I guess it depends on how you play, how much you identify with your character. Sometimes you're right in there, but sometimes you're sort of a little bit elevated and you're sort of that weird god thing that's moving your characters around the board, so to speak. And so that also kind of can mess with your head a little bit, I think, when you're, <laughs> you know. Um, and how much, Bob, would you say that, because um, again, you're a Call of Cthulhu gamer as well. How much would you say that Lovecraft influences your non-Call of Cthulhu gameplay? Oh, uh, very, very much. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was just a few years ago, the first time I had a player cry out of fear. Um, and I was I was running a first ed game where they'd come across an abandoned manse at the edge of a swamp. And I mean, the some of some of the Lovecraftian aspects, things like you know the the inner dimensions of the house were were wrong. There were spaces where there shouldn't be spaces, but parts of it were very blatant. Like when there was a swarm of human-faced and handed rat creatures pouring out of the walls. Uh, I, but I always like to kind of put that that tension, that otherworldliness, that beyondness into my adventures because it tends to make things less less mundane. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. I'll, I'll, a dungeon corridor is a dungeon corridor is a dungeon corridor, but if it's lined with, you know, strange vines that pulse and undulate of their mm-hmm. of seemingly of their own volition, it becomes different. It becomes alien. It becomes other. Absolutely. And in the shunned house, there's a lot of sinister vegetation. Uh, one of the things that I liked about the shunned house, too, is we technically have vampires, Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe ghosts. we also have maybe ghosts, and we have maybe werewolves. So we have these three totally, you know, universal monster. Was it monster? Yeah, universal monster, hammer yeah. horror, monster mash kind of exactly. Thing. But done in ways where they're completely unrecognizable, and the whole kind of Goodman Games Dungeon Crawl Classic style of like make the monster unique and have it stand out is really alive. And I think in, in Lovecraft's work, and especially. I mean, it's really live in all of Lovecraft's work, but I also like when he kind of takes these kind of known tropes and turns them on their head. That's great. And I actually want to hit on an interesting, since we're talking about tropes, and since, Bob, you also mentioned just like creating fear in this one specific player, do you think that sort of traditional high fantasy, as it's now experienced maybe in sort of third edition onwards of D&D, can accommodate this kind of more alienating, uh, you know, 
presence. You know, I actually I think that's that's one of the bigger differences between high fantasy and sword and sorcery. Um, Tolkien, you know, Tolkien tries and he hints at, at you know, was it in places deep where dark things sleep, and, and and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, everything is a is a global scale. There's not. In high fantasy, there's not really room for that personal horror. Um, everything is everything is globally important, and so it doesn't matter on a local level. Where sword and sorcery in Appendix N, it's generally about the immediate vicinity. It's about the protagonist and what they're doing for themselves more than what they're doing for everybody else. You know, Lovecraft's protagonists aren't trying to save the world. They're just trying to get away. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, would you say that OSR gaming is better than modern gaming at playing kind of Lovecraftian themes? I think that that OSR gaming draw, draws more of its roots from there. I mean, you can take you can take any modern game and turn it on its head and run it as a very you know, run an adventure as a very personal level adventure and story. But the OSR line that's more the intent. So as a, as a frequent game master, do you get pushback from people who are maybe not expecting that sort of style of play or something like that, or or the expectations kind of laid out already when you when you're at the table? Uh, not really. I mean, it also depends what I'm running. Like I run a regular Wednesday night game, and it's just old TSR modules as written. I'm working my way through all the TSR AD and D modules, and so the expectations those players have versus when I'm running an open table D&D or DCC game or if I'm running a Call of Cthulhu game are very different and I'll bounce around you know I will I will run a high fantasy game you know set in kind of an open-ended world I think that high fantasy works better if you just want to set players down in a sandbox and let them run but if you really want to focus on on the players and kind of a more of a personal story arc that's the way to go Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I, I look at Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and then kind of Planescape and uh, the Manual of the Planes and other dimensions and interdimensional travel. It always seems very codified. And we understand this is the world of fire. This is the world of air. This is the ethereal plane. And there are rules as to how these things work. I really liked the interdimensionality of both the shunned house and dreams of the witch house because also in the shunned house there's this idea that paul roulet may have kind of gone into some kind of slightly different dimension where he's kind of manifested these like vampiric powers or whatever Mm -hmm. um and i like that the other dimensions are not things that are really easily codifiable or even even things that you can even make sense of with with like the human experience and I, i i think that kind of style of the multiverse is more intriguing and appealing to me in gaming. I just don't see it very often. I think it's hard to describe at the table mm-hmm. and get, if we're talking about especially sort of uh, theater of the mind. Mm-hmm. And again, maybe that's where having a regular group, an intimate group works better than instead of an open table situation. Mm-hmm. But what do you think, Bob? Well, I, I think that, yes, there are things that you can do in a, in a closed game, especially if you have complete control over the environment. 
but you can you can really hit those notes with an open table game in the middle of a gaming shop. That's that's where I made my player cry. Uh, <laughs> of, of, of course, of course. To be fair, the the weather was working with me. So there, you know, we're in Florida. There's this huge thunderstorm going on. The lights in the store are flickering, and yeah. But I I think that it matters the the players themselves and whether or not they are open to that and and want that is going to play a bigger part in the the success or failure rather than where you are or or the environment that you're in if that makes sense i think there have been times where D&D and AD&D did do that successfully because I like pocket dimensions. So I think Ravenloft is kind of a really kind of fun kind of way of playing with the pocket dimension. But I have seen, like, for example, with Dungeon Crawl Classics, the very first adventure published in the core book is about a bunch of villagers who are standing around and this portal to this like other mysterious place appears and you can walk through it or not. And it kind of takes you to this little pocket dimension. And that's kind of a common theme in DCC. There's also a great module called Fate's Fell Hand, which completely takes place in this little pocket dimension. And I think those things are really kind of fun and are good kind of world builders and also a good opportunity to kind of go on a field trip and leave your, <laughs> leave your village without having to travel across the sea to do so. Right, right. Well, and I think those work better in DCC than D&D, honestly, because it's less codified in, in yeah. DCC and you, and you're very right there. It's, you know, Lovecraft, Lovecraft plants this mystery. There's other places, there's weird rules on how to get there. And, you know, it, in the dungeon master's guide, there is a map. This is the planes. This is how they lay out and, uh, and go from there. It's like, eh, the right. it, making it mechanical, takes some of that mystery out. And I've noticed even with sort of call of Cthulhu, there's sort of been pushback and in the sort of uh, Pelgrane Press uh, licensing Trail of Cthulhu, they try to bring the, the mystery back to the mythos, if you will, by saying, instead of saying Cthulhu is just this one thing, here's three possible interpretations of what Cthulhu is. You know, sometimes the danger is just statting up something that th- that thing becomes a stat, that thing becomes something that you can fight as opposed to something that you should not fight. <laughs> That's true. I, I think anytime, anytime you've got players in a Call of Cthulhu game that think that they should be uh, entering combat with a being that is referred to as an <laughs> elder god, right. there's a problem. I mean, yes, I mean he's statted in Call of Cthulhu, but what? It's he attacks five times around with a 100% hit rate and does like what, 20, 20 to 100 points of damage. Yeah, I mean <laughs> he hits you, and you die. And, you know, combat in Call of Cthulhu is already a little bit risky, uh, and that's just sure. shooting at you. Uh, <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, I I ran a year and a half long campaign that ended with uh, with the gates. You know, Riley had risen, the gates had opened, and they were in there trying to trying to get them closed before Cthulhu could stride out to uh, to take over the world. And the only way to do it was to leave somebody on the inside to close the gates. And the postscript was the the memoirs that never got written, Cthulhu Tojam and other things I have been, and. Uh, <laughs> There's just there's no winning that. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, clearly, if you want to do kind of Cthulhu style gaming, Call of Cthulhu is the place to go. But if you want to do Lovecraftian fantasy gaming, one of the first places that comes to mind for me is Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, mm. and that that setting that that rule set and setting is designed specifically 
to kind of create the feel of Robert E. Howard, mm-hmm. H.P. Lovecraft, and Clark Ashton Smith. And the themes for all three of those authors are very, very present within this world. And also, I think one thing that's fun is within the texts of these stories, Lovecraft keeps making Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard references as well. Mm-hmm. In At the Mountains of Madness, he references uh, the Sogwa, who is um, a Clark Ashton Smith creation. And he references Volusia, which is the land where Cull is from, um, Robert E. Howard's Cull. And then in Dreams in the Witch House, he references three books, the Necronomicon, which is his creation, the Book of Avon, which is a Clark Ashton Smith creation, and uh, Unish Brechlichen Colton uh, by Robert E. Howard, which funnily enough actually means, a lot of people think it means un- unnameable cults. It actually literally means unpronounceable cults. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but have I and I've played in Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Have the two of you had any experience with that rule set? And do you find that it explores these themes well? I've I've never had a chance to play the system, but mm-hmm. I I own. I picked up two of the adventures at GaryCon some years ago, uh, mostly because one of them essentially was Dreams in the Witch House. Uh, mm-hmm. So it is it is certainly a great system for Lovecraftian fantasy, and they make no bones about it with the published adventures. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. There's one called Beneath the Comet, and it's so cosmic because so much is happening that's coming from space. And that's kind of a theme that I don't feel like you see very often in fantasy role-playing games. Mm-hmm. It's like things that are coming from space, that's, like evil entities. That's like the uh, Colorado Space or something. That's the first Lovecraft story I read, by the way. Mm. Um, that's a good one to start with, but that's also the one that may make you swear off Lovecraft also at the same time. <laughs> um, I have not played AS and SH, right? No, uh, Sonic Swords. But um, – I have Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which is also the other OSR uh, rule set that's very sort of horror-oriented. Yes. Although, interestingly, it has no sanity mechanic, which is the sort of the keystone of uh, Call of Cthulhu. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if Astonishing Swordsman has anything like that. It so, does not. Um, so it's really up to you to create a sense of fear through your game-mastering skills then, rather than some kind of mechanic, which Call of Cthulhu does have. Actually, that's an interesting thing. So how do we create that? sense of fear or what are some of the tips for creating that sense of fear if you don't have that mechanic to lean on well i mean beyond just making your your players concerned and frightened for the very existence of their characters there's another system out there i think that that really takes takes that tension and ratchets it up and it's a very simple system it's a game called dread i don't know if either of you Mm. are familiar with it that's with yes. the Jenga. It uses it uses a Jenga tower, and every time I've played it, um, I when I'm on my way home from the session, I am still just wired for sound and shaking. It's that whole, you're you know, okay. Well, you're not rolling a die. Take take three take three blocks and place them, and if the tower falls, you're dead. You it <laughs> it really over the course of an adventure builds that that connection and and that growing sense of dread. And while you don't necessarily need to use a Jenga tower uh, to accomplish that effect when you're running that's that's the key is making sure that your players feel that connection to their characters and what they're experiencing because then then the horror becomes personal to them and then the entire experience is elevated Mm -hmm. and bob how gruesome do you let your games get like for example in dreams in the witch house we have a sacrifice of an infant and so dead babies, are they 
totally game? Or are you like, uh, it depends on who I'm playing with and the feel of it? Or is that like, no, 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 stay far away from that? I think it really depends on on the session, what I'm running, and who I'm playing with. Normally, okay. something like that, is, when I'm running, is more is more hinted at. Uh, in the adventure that, that made the player cry. At one point, there is a, a nursery. They come into the nursery, and there's the crib. And above it is a... Uh, is a mobile of infant bones just slowly blowing in the wind. So so the gore is not there. It's not all splatter punked, but the intimation is there that, that yes. that's happened. That's that's not to say that I haven't explored darker or more gruesome themes, but I think that just like with just like with modern cinema, going to that well too often is is just the the cheap way out and it's not it's not satisfying it, to me it's 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 lazy i mm-hmm. think that it, lovecraft talks about things and every once in a while something gets really brutal but the more you can leave to the player's imagination that's that's what's going to haunt them is what they're thinking up not what i'm going to tell them sitting around a table as part of you getting your player sort of setting player expectation or management, do you use anything like the X card? That's that's an innovation that like I missed. No. You know, I was out. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm not I'm not really a fan of the X card in anything other than like a convention setting where mm-hmm. nobody knows each other and nobody can really have valid expectations. If I'm if I'm sitting around a, a table with with people that have come specifically for for my game or people that know me it's it's a removal of of agency and it's and it's one it's it's one player saying no when they when they should have at least had a had a relative understanding of, of what might happen and then thus affecting the experience of everyone else now mm-hmm. in a convention setting that's that's very different you have no idea what you're getting into or with who for a convention game and i think something like that is great but at at my table i should one be able to gauge things so i'm not going to cause someone to you know piss themselves and flee into the night crying but also they should come in with an understanding of of the level of, of which we're playing at and and again i'm not a big fan of introducing some of the some of the uh, uh more brutal themes you know, i'm not really a big fan of of rape in role playing games and and things of that nature which are are the more common problems but mm-hmm. I also think that if you're go if you're going to that well again, you're just you're just being lazy. You're just trying to shock people, and you're not really trying to effectively do something. If that's the kind of judge you are, then people that know you should already know whether or not they want to avoid you. At a yeah. convention setting, though, that's that's different. Right. right. Great. Before we wrap up, I just I guess want to check in with 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 each of us. Are there any kind of last thoughts you have that you were hoping to kind of uh, express before we wrap this episode up? I have one. Okay. Um, I would say that in at the Mountains of Madness, there's this great moment where we where we're, we've been fearing the elder things the whole this whole time, and then we discover that there's something even more that the elder things fear. So I think what might be a fun exercise is as a judge or a game master or whatever. You know what your PCs fear. Maybe ask yourself what those things fear. Mm. You know, that actually ties into one of the thoughts that I had. 
like I said earlier, I, I think if you look at this as an allegorical tale of post-colonialism, it gets really interesting. If you think about it for a second, you could look at the Shuggaths as the heroes of the story. They were they were created as a slave race. They rose up against their oppressors. You know, after centuries, they're still so terrified of them that they continue looking for them. They find them. They kill some more. There's these other creatures. <laughs> they scribble a warning in their oppressor's tongue. No, no, stay away. They're clearly intelligent. Uh, you know, they're, they're terrifying and dangerous. But you know, they, they they just wanted to be left alone. They were in this tiny little place. But the other thing that I think that most of Lovecraft's stories kind of hit with me is there's a, a William Faulkner quote, and it, it's real short. The past is never dead. It's not even the past. Mm. And that's that's Lovecraft in a jar right there. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that idea of, of deep time, I think, is, is really powerful. And I think that's something that we don't want to, like, overload our players with, like, too much background history. But just to constantly emphasize that, you know, whatever they're doing, it, I mean, again, it depends on the kind of game you're running, right? is built on these foundations of so much other stuff. We don't want to give them a giant Bible to start the game, but any chance we get to reiterate that there are powers and principalities you know, in the universe, it's probably a fun thing to do. Great. Uh, we are about, about out of time, but I wanted to let you know what our next two episodes will be. Uh, next week, or actually next episode, will be J.R.R. Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring, and then after that will be Andre Norton's Witch World. Uh, if you want to uh, check us out, uh, we're on all the various regular uh, podcast platforms, Google Play, Apple Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can also go to our website, Appendix N Book Club. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, do so at AppendixNBookClub at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. Uh, any other last bits of business? Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Sure thing. Yes, thank you so much, Bob. We hope to have you on again. <laughs> I'll be here. <laughs> okay. okay, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs> <laughs>